This is the Voice in the Wilderness podcast channel. The topic for today's podcast will be my problems with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. But first, the prayer. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, in the heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. So, this may seem like a rather strange topic um, to be covering. I don't know um, if and how closely any of you follow my podcast. This, if you if you've been following for a little while, this may seem like a rather strange detour from what I normally do. Um, all I could say is, is uh, the thought occurred to me this afternoon, and I felt like it could do with a treatment. Now, before I get into the topic itself, I want to make a couple of uh, disclaimers here. Number one, um, I am not claiming to know C.S. Lewis's mental or spiritual state. What I'm about ready to do in this episode is just give my problems with the book and um, that's, you know, whatever happens is between him and God. These are my issues with the book and must be taken as such. And once again, as I say in all my podcasts, you take this for what it's worth. Okay? This is... <laughs> it's that simple. And also, too, that once again, I'm dealing with a broad brush. This is not... This is not a general... Uh, I'm sorry... This is not a broad brush. This is a generality. A broad brush is implying everyone, and I'm not doing that. I'm saying certain segments of certain segments of a set of occultism and uh, neo-Catholics and neo-traditional um, uh, neo-trads. Um, now. Before I get started on my issues, you have to understand the context of who C.S. Lewis is and the context of the church that he was affiliated with. C.S. Lewis started out as an atheist. I'm not sure if he was a journalist or a writer. But he started off as an atheist, and he might have he might have been I'm not sure about this. He might have been uh, a fellow professor with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien at Oxford. I just know whatever, regardless of what his um his uh, career, what what he was doing for a living was that he started off as an atheist. And like I said, he was a friend of J.R.R. Tolkien. For those of you who are, un are, who are unaware, J.R.R. Tolkien was a pre-Vatican II Catholic who lived in England. Um, and he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um... In other words, he was what would be known as a true traditional Catholic. Um, he taught at Oxford, and I'm not sure what what he taught. If it was 
um, pre-Norse mythology or some sort of language course about the origins of uh, of the Norse languages. I'm not sure, but I know it had it was either one of those two. And if I'm wrong, somebody listener mailbag is open. Drop me a line. Anyhow. So in the course of his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien, he converted to Anglicanism. Uh, for my American audience, Anglicanism would be the original root of what is known as Episcopalianism in America, although there are Anglican churches in America. But the branch of Episcopalianism did come from Anglicanism. To, to give a brief summary of what Anglicanism entails. Shortly after Martin Luther revolted from the Catholic Church, you have to remember, before Martin Luther, you were either Catholic or you were a heretic. There was no in-between. Um, Henry VIII, um, who, when Luther first revolted from the Catholic Church, wrote a defense, because at this time he was a Catholic as well, he wrote a defense of Catholicism and of the Pope, against Martin Luther and the Pope at that time gave him the title of Defender of the Faith. Shortly after he did this, um, Henry VIII wanted a male heir because if I'm not mistaken, at that time, the way... Um, the English throne was set up, only a male could inherit the throne. This is my understanding. You take it for what it's worth. And he was married to a Catholic queen um, oh, this is a bad time for my brain to crap out on me. Um, it I can't remember the name of the queen. I want to say Isabella, but I don't think that's right. But he was married to a Spanish queen who gave him two daughters. Queen Elizabeth, or who became later Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Mary of Scots, who retained her mother's Catholicism. Elizabeth went the route of her dad and rebelled against the Catholic Church and was excommunicated. Anyhow, he went to the Pope, or I should say he sent his envoys to the Pope at that time and pretty much asked the Pope for a dispensation from the Catholic uh, religious law that said that you're married for life, you cannot just up and divorce your wife anytime you feel like it, for whatever reason you feel like it. The Pope told his envoys, "No dice. You're 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 married to the um, you know to the Queen of Spain. You're to stay married." At this point, um, Henry VIII decided he was going to break with the Catholic Church. So what he proceeded to do was was he went to the Catholic clergy and and prelates in England. And he basically said, hey, I am the head of the Catholic Church in England, not the Pope. If you do not want to be jailed and lose your heads, I suggest you sign off on this. And except for two people that I'm aware of, um, St. John Fisher, who I believe was a bishop, 
and St. Thomas More, who was a part of King Henry's court, um, I believe he was a member of the Privy Council, if I'm not mistaken, both told Henry VIII, sorry, no dice, uh, do what you have to do, we're not signing. Which um, comes to the famous quote from St. Thomas More, where he wrote a letter to King Henry VIII saying, I am a loyal subject of your majesty, but I am God's first. I really like that quote. Anyhow, so Henry VIII had him put to death, but now I'm talking about the prelates and some of the priests basically signed off and said that Henry was the head of the Catholic Church in England or what people today might know as Anglo-Catholicism. There's no such thing as Anglo-Catholicism. Either you recognize the Pope as the true head of the Catholic Church, or you don't. If you're recognizing a sovereign as the head of whatever uh, Catholic Church is in your country, um, that is a heresy. Anyhow, so after the... Um, after Henry VIII basically made a couple examples of some true Catholic, um, what they called themselves was recusant, that's just a fancy word uh, for saying that they, they, they were not going to go with the king's edict, um, the Pope at that time excommunicated Henry. And what Henry VIII basically did was he took over the Catholic churches and he killed the monks and nuns that would not submit to him, basically looted the monasteries and the churches to fill his coffers and rewarded the... Um, English dukes and barons and nobles that went along with him used that money to, to, you know, to reward them and also gave them the properties and the lands of the monasteries uh, and convents um, of the Catholic Church to them as rewards. And... For more on that subject, I have on my original podcast a three-part series called The Heirs of Protestantism, where I talk about this. Well, so having done that, well, I need, I need to make a clarification. Henry VIII, for the most part, had no issues with the Catholic Church, their mass, their sacraments or whatever. He just had an issue that he wanted to get divorced so that he could have a male heir. Unfortunately, it took him seven women to, to get that male heir he so desperately desired. And in the end, that heir did not even live to be a teenager. He ended up dying as a child. And anyone who doesn't see the hands of divine providence in that, well, you're spiritually blind. Anyway, so his version of what is now known as Anglo-Catholicism or Anglicanism is considered high church Anglicanism. It's considered high church Anglicanism. However, there were people within his circle that were more sympathetic toward Luther's version of Protestantism, and they are known as low church Catholics. In other words, anything that even smacked of the Catholic Church, the true Catholic Church, they wanted nothing to do with. They wanted bare churches, um, the body and blood is just bread and wine, Mary had nothing to do with Jesus' salvific, uh, 
mission on earth anything that had anything to do with the Catholic Church, they rejected outright. Well, because we're talking about Protestantism, which is subjective, it depended on the person. But for, for the most part, your two major splits were low church Anglicanism and high church Anglicanism. There's a reason I'm going into this autism. When Elizabeth, his daughter, took the reins of power after her younger brother died, she basically took her dad's line of that she was going to be the big boss of the, uh, of the church in England, and she basically favored the low Anglican church. She wanted to separate herself from anything remotely Catholic about the church. And when she did that, even after she did that, the Pope in Rome still tried to send an envoy to her saying, hey, you know, just, just come back to the church. The, the monasteries and the churches and the valuable religious artifacts that you have looted and stolen from us, you can have it. Just come back to the church. And basically, Queen Elizabeth who a cult of personality has been built around in modern-day England, told the Pope at that time, go pound sand, in which, in, in, in that case, the Pope at that point had no choice but to excommunicate her. Mm. And not only did he excommunicate her, I'm not a hundred infallibly certain but either when Henry broke with the Catholic Church or when his daughter Elizabeth broke with the Catholic Church, the Pope at that time basically excommunicated all the prelates and priests who had gone along with Henry and joined the Anglican Church. Now, the reason I'm going into this autistic detail I'm not sure which branch of Anglicanism that C.S. Lewis joined after he became or after he was an atheist. If it was high church Anglicanism or low church Anglicanism. What I can say with certainty is in the early 1930s, the Anglican Church had what was known as the Council of Lambeth. And this council, up until this point, in the Anglican Church, you could not, you could not use birth control. Birth control was against the Anglican Church, and you could get excommunicated if they found out you were using it. Well, the Council of Lambeth said, you know, like good Protestants today are, eh, doesn't really matter. You want to use a rubber or birth, you know, whatever birth control, go ahead. We don't care. So, the reason I'm bringing up this council is since it came from the Anglican Church itself, it wouldn't have mattered if he was low church Anglican or high church Anglican by making birth control legal within the Anglican Church, they were basically, I mean, honestly speaking, the minute that Henry and his daughter broke with the Catholic Church, they were heretics. But it basically, you know, cemented their rebellion. Now, why am I saying this? Why am I bringing this up? As I said earlier, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the very popular fantasy series... Um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he was very much, like I said, traditional Catholic because you got to remember when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that was at least 30, 20 to 30 years prior to the Vatican II Council, which I'm said of a contest, we consider that a heretical council. Um, 
around the time that he wrote that series, the fantasy series, um, C.S. Lewis, in case I need to remind anybody who is still Anglican, wrote the um, the Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series. It's a series of seven books. Now, just as a disclaimer, even when I was a heathen, a heathen uh, who did not know anything about the differences between Anglicanism and Catholicism, I always um, thought that the um, just artistically speaking that the Lord of the Rings trilogy was a much, much better written fantasy series than the Chronicles of Narnia. But as I said earlier in the podcast or in the episode, take it for what it's worth. You know, opinions are very much subjective. This is, this is not necessarily an artistic critique, but I, I never, and, and when I was a Protestant, I had read C.S. Lewis's apologetics works and even as a Protestant, I couldn't see what all the fuss was about. Um, once again, I was a Protestant when I read those, so my indifference towards C.S. Lewis as an apologist had nothing to do with his Protestantism. It just had more to do with his style as an apologist. Um, now, my understanding, my understanding, because I did read about this after I joined the Vatican II sect about C.S. Lewis and his relationship with Tolkien, was that despite uh, C.S. Lewis' complete and utter obstinance and sticking with um, the Anglican Church, J.R.R. Tolkien still tried in his very gentle way to get C.S. Lewis to see how, you know, pre-Vatican II Catholicism was the true Catholic Church. Now, I'm not going to claim that this is an infallible quote. This is taken from memory and we're talking almost 20 years ago. But basically, my understanding is, is that C.S. Lewis said that he thought that the Catholic religion was a very beautiful religion, but he couldn't get behind it for theological reasons. Which, if you're set of a contest, should tell you something. Now once again, I'm going to kind of get off the track. I'll bring it back around. With my dealings within the past year with online set of a contest, and I'm suspecting they're young people that they will often quote C.S. Lewis. And by the way, it's not just set of a contest, it's also uh, neo traditionalists and neo Catholics. However, given the fact that Vatican II basically Protestantized uh, Catholicism and basically made religious indifferentism a plank in their council, the fact that the neo-traditionalists and the neo-Catholics have no issue with C.S. Lewis does not surprise me in the least. Anyhow, when... This hasn't come up very often because mostly um, most people tend to, to ignore what I say, but the few people who did interact with me when I told them, it was like, you do know that 
that C.S. Lewis is um, Protestant, don't you? These are coming from self-professed Sedevacantists. They said, well, no, we didn't know. Which goes back to my last podcast about how, why I'm so harsh on Sedevacantists. Anyhow, and then I have, I, to the few that were interested in continuing, I told them how that I, I had one person I was dealing with. She, she said something along the lines, well, he's Anglo-Catholic. And I had to tell her, no, he's not Anglo-Catholic. He's Anglican, meaning he's a Protestant. There is no such thing as Anglo-Catholicism. And I basically explained to her what I just said like less than a minute ago how um, C.S. Lewis said that he could not get behind Catholicism theologically. And if, if, if I'm remembering that quote in its particulars correctly would mean he's no different than your average neo-traditionalist. That he likes the pretty vestments, he likes the pretty churches, he likes the incense and the candles. But theologically, he could give a dang less. He could, he could literally give a dang less about the theology behind the Latin Mass. And once again, for a deeper dive into that, St. Longinus' baptism, I um, go into the airs of what are known as the smells and the bells, neo-traditionalist sect. Anyway, this is not what this is about. So, to his dying day, he died a Protestant. If I'm remembering the dates correctly, J.R.R. Tolkien actually died before C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis died an unrepentant Protestant. Now, obviously, to the Protestants who may listen to this, yeah, big deal. But to the Catholics who take their religion seriously, this should be troubling on a wide variety of, of uh, reasons. Anyway, so here's my problem with The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, which was the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series that he wrote. Now, this is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of documented fact. Of all the books in that series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe did the best. It's actually been re remade two or three times. And it is, an abs it, it is his most popular book of the series. And having read the series, take this for what it's worth, I would consider the best. The best of all seven books. Once again, um, opinions are subjective, not objective. So, anyhow. Um, the, the, the gist of the book is, uh, I believe it's three kids, maybe four, they're a family, find a magical wardrobe one day, I think it's raining, so they can't go out and play. And so one of the family members goes into the wardrobe and disappears. And the other family members look in the wardrobe and they disappear and they end up in this land called Narnia. And at this time, Narnia is split between the white witch who is the Satan figure, if you want to, you know, just like Sauron is in the Lord of the Rings, 
and Aslan the Lion, who represents Christ the King. And once again, just on a sub, uh, just on a uh, artistic note, Aslan being a lion, the Christ figure, is a little bit too clumsy for me. <laughs> um, anybody who knows their Protestant theology or even their Catholic theology knows that Jesus is often referred to as the Lion of Judah. Now, I didn't get the connection when I was a pagan, obviously, but once I started reading up on my Christianity, it was like, okay, that's a little too on the nose. Anyhow. Not to get too deep in the weeds about the book. Some of you have probably already read it. The white witch ends up enslaving one of the family members and he turns traitor and turns um, Aslan over to the white witch who then proceeds to crucify, well, not crucify him, but shave his mane and um, he dies once his mane, uh, his mane is shaved. Now, here's where my issue comes in. Forget any critique. This is absolutely nothing to do with artistic critiques. This is absolutely has to do with the theological critique. There was a reason I went into autistic detail about the Anglican Church. As I said, the low Anglicans wanted nothing to do with Catholicism, especially the Lord's Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary. Now, some people, and by the way, I, I never even bothered to research if, if, uh, if C.S. Lewis's uh, if, if he had actually run into Catholics who had an issue with the White Queen, or, I'm sorry, the White Witch, um, but it doesn't matter. Given the fact that he used such a broad, and I'm just, I'm just using my, what, what we Americans call, quite crudely, my critical art, well, my critical thinking skills and my common sense. If he was going to be clumsy enough to use the Christ figure as a lion, any Christian worth his salt knows that one of Christ's titles is the Lion of Judah, and I dare you to go on the interwebs and, and, and um, go... Uh, um, Google um, Protestant imagery, there are lions. I mean, you'll get more lions than in Africa. You'll get more lions in a pride. So if he was going to be that clumsy, and I've already, like I said, I've already documented that the Anglican Church wanted nothing to do with Catholicism. So... Let's just assume, and by the way, that was another thing I forgot to mention. Thank you, Lord Jesus, Mother Mary. I am, I am giving C.S. Lewis every benefit of the doubt. These are just my objections. Once again, I'm not making a statement as to what he was thinking or what his theology was. The man's been dead since the 60s. You know, that's between him and God. I'm only bringing up what I noticed when I was thinking about this. Um, uh, some people might argue, well, you know, to make the uh, antagonist a male figure would have been too on the nose. It would have been too obvious. And with, in which case... I would bring up two arguments. The first one being, he was very on the nose and very obvious who the Christ figure was going to be. The second thing I would bring up is, 
Okay, fine. Fine. He could have had a female antagonist. Here's my problem with this argument. The White Witch. Anybody who is remotely familiar with Catholicism, and yes, I'm including the Vatican II sect and the Neotrads, knows that a lot of images of the Blessed Virgin Mary, she is wearing white. Now, some of you are going to say, well, in other images she wears other colors, and in some images she wears blue. That is true, but in the majority of instances, she is wearing white to symbolize her purity. There's that aspect. And then the other aspect is why witch? And I'm saying this for a very particular reason. Once again, going back to the obvious connotations, which symbolizes something very evil and depraved, especially in the 1930s. I would say it has less resonance nowadays because we actually have people unironically calling themselves witches. But let's just say, okay, the antagonist had to be female. Why the white witch? Why not the Red Queen? Well, never mind that because the Red Queen had been used in... Um, the poem Alice in Wonderland. But what I'm saying is it didn't have to be a witch. It didn't have to be a witch and it didn't have to be white. Now, if you wanted to keep with the witch motif, okay, why not the black witch? Because as I said before, in my eyes, C.S. Lewis wasn't being very um, artistic when he made the Aslan figure, the Christ figure. So if you wanted, if you absolutely needed a female antagonist toward, um, toward Aslan and you didn't want to be too on the nose, why not the Black Witch? And honestly speaking, Honestly speaking, um, since, since the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe are absolutely a thinly veiled allegory about Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection, if you're going to make it an allegory, why not make the antagonist male? Now, yes, you autists out there, uh, uh, angels are asexual. They, they're not, you know, neither male nor female. That's all well and good. But I will tell you that just as in Catholicism, the Trinity is referred to in male pronouns, whether you like it or not, you feminists. So is Satan. Satan is identified as a male. And while it is absolutely true that angels are androgynous, which, if you want to be artistic, is why Satan in the Passion of Christ is portrayed androgynously. Why Mel Gibson do that? But in, in pre-Vatican II Catholic writings, Satan is listed as a male. So if you're my question is, if you're going to have a thinly veiled allegory about um, Christ's death and resurrection. And you're going to be so broad as to use a lion figure as the Christ figure. I don't see what the harm would be, artistically speaking, 
and using a male uh, antagonist. I honestly don't. But let's just say you had to make it a female. Why not the Black Witch? Why in particular the White Witch? Why in particular? And once again, I'm not claiming infallibility on these observations. This was just a thought that crossed my mind this afternoon. And I've decided, you know, to go ahead and do a podcast on it. Because it's not an illegitimate question from somebody like me. Like I said, I haven't read C.S. Lewis's biography. I've read his apologetics. I've read his fantasy and his science fiction. I haven't read his biography. And for that matter, I haven't read Jared Tolkien's biography. To me, it's not necessary. You know, especially in the case of J.R.R. Tolkien, who was just an average English layman who happened to be an Oxford uh, University, uh, what they known as a Don. And I think a Don is like the head of all the professors. But anyway, I don't think it's a legitimate question to ask. And... I don't think that anything that I've covered in the last 10 minutes is an illegitimate question to ask. So, once again, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make any apologies. Because, quite frankly, I don't feel like I need to. Honestly speaking, I don't feel like I need to. So... Let me make sure before I close this out that I haven't missed anything. I don't think I have. No, honestly, that's, that's it. And I, I, before I close out, once again, I will give disclaimer. I'm not judging the state of the man's soul. I'm not judging his intentions. I am merely raising... What, from my own common sense, what would be the P from a true Catholic standpoint, questions surrounding the choice of a white witch as an, uh, Aslan's antagonist in the initial book. So, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for giving me 40 minutes of your time. I am grateful and I appreciate it. And I, I humbly pray, I humbly pray that you get some food for thought out of this. I really do. And... Once again, take this for what it's worth. I do care about everybody. And I pray for everybody. And I would like to see as many people get to heaven as possible. And So, I'm going to close it out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. God bless you. Bye-bye.